0: Yellet sends one to right center and Get up! What's going on, Ball and Glove, Love and Brewer fans. Welcome to the Brewers Trilogy Podcast. I'm your host Tyler. You can find me on Twitter at Tyler You can find my writing, the following review in the Brew and Wisconsin Sports Heroics on Twitter. I hope you all had a great and enjoyable weekend. I know I certainly did. It was really hot, and Trevor and I went out and frisbee golfed about 36 holes worth on Saturday. So that was draining in the sun and. Then we proceeded to go home and, and drink a crap ton of Lining Googles and Summer Shanty, Barry Weiss. We had a big ass pyramid and enjoyed ourselves as we watched Saturday's game unfold. So. That was really the highlight of my weekend. Sunday was not very pleasant. Uh, just kind of bumming around, did a lot of cutting of zucchini, freezing those, zoodling, which is a fun word to say, but not a very fun process to do, uh, especially when you accidentally let your zucchini grow a little bit too big and, and they don't quite fit in the zoodler. So that was my lessons from this weekend here. and. And I told you I was going to be hyped for this series recap. I'm, I'm very pleased with how the Brewers did over the weekend, and I'm excited to talk about it. So let's discuss what happened here. Game one on Friday night was at 7-1 victory. I call it dramatic despite the score. This was a really high-anticipated matchup. We talked about all the pitching matchups that were going on this weekend in our preview podcast. Uh, and this one on Friday was Peralta and Giolito. The Brewers collected hits early against Giolito, but in back-to-back innings, they hit into double plays, and that kind of killed some early rallies. Peralta only went four innings, but this was by design and then piggybacked with Adrian Hauser, who also did well. The first run of the game came in the fourth inning. That was a bases-loaded single from Rowdy Telez. Taylor and Peterson both flew out to leave the bases loaded at that time. Both offenses remained stagnant at that point until the seventh inning. Boxberger got into some trouble as he walked a batter and then surrendered a hit with just one out, but then a smart play by Luis Urias allowed the Brewers to keep their lead. With runners on the corners and a fast Tim Anderson up to bat, a grounder was hit right at Urias, who rather than trying to turn two, threw home and got the tying run out. Boxberger then got Brian Goodwin to fly out to end the inning and preserve the lead, In the bottom of the 7th inning, Tyrone Taylor played hero with the bases loaded. He hit his first career grand slam. That was set up due to the left-handed pitcher Bummer for the White Sox, issuing four walks in the inning, including nine straight balls at one point. Tellez, in fact, had an RBI walk right before Taylor destroyed a baseball into the second deck in the left field bleachers that just barely stayed fair it was quite the scenes and then the White Sox after this grand slam decided to become sore losers so I called it the game was blown wide open Tony Larusa ended up getting injected in that seventh inning he was arguing balls and strikes at least what I thought initially but then after the game it was revealed that he thought Luis Arias was ducking pitches as he drew a walk like I said there was four walks in that inning Later on, Tim Anderson got ejected. He was in the dugout when that was initiated, and then he just epically stared down the home plate umpire, and just, he didn't want to leave. He refused to. It was quite the scene, and thankfully, at the right time, the cameras got a short clip of Craig Council just smiling and laughing as this was going on, which was really just the icing on the cake to watching the White Sox implode. It's fair to say this game was all Brewers and, you know, when you look at the final score there. Uh, the only run they gave up was from Hunter Strickland. He surrendered a home run, and that made back-to-back outings of earned runs for Strickland, who initially before this had pitched 13 innings of scoreless baseball since being acquired. Game 2 was a 6-1 to victory in front of a sellout crowd on the year of nearly 42,000 people. Colton Wong swung on the first pitch of this one and launched a home run into the right field bleachers. Tyrone Taylor added a solo homer in the second inning for his second home run in as many days to make it 2-0. The fourth inning is when the White Sox frustrations from last night boiled up again. After Tyrone Taylor singled, Lucarius hit a sack bunt and reached on an error in a combination of a bad throw by the catcher and the second baseman covering being unable to handle the throw. Taylor ends up scoring as a result, Urias goes to third, Pena then ends up walking here and the bases are loaded, with Corbin Burns and Colton Wong do up next, they both strike out, uh, but then thankfully Willie Thomas was able to walk in a run to make it 4-0 to zero Brewers. The fifth inning in this one, yep, we're only in the fifth inning, is just absolutely confusing. Corbin Burns ran into some of the worst luck I've ever seen. There was four plays in a row that all resulted in singles off soft contact. Infield single off Wong's glove. Infield single to third that Urias didn't even bother attempting to throw anyone. A stoinker single in the left center that Yelich almost caught. And then what looked like to be an RBI single on a dribbler in a no-man's land, in which Burns had to field the ball, tried to get the force out at home, but... He threw the baseball wildly, it hit the umpire, and initially everyone was ruled safe. Chris Hook at this point then came out for a mound visit, and then the very first pitch after the mound visit, Corbin Burns stepped on the rubber, threw the ball to Pena, who then stepped on home plate to appeal the play at home. The home plate umpire gave the safe sign, and then Council came out and indicated he wanted to challenge this. So they went to replay, and they showed that Mankata indeed never did touch home plate. It was a really lengthy replay. Why I do not know, but he was called out. Larusa then came out for an explanation, and after a long period of time, the umps went back to the replay, and then they still indicated that the the runner was out. After the game, what we found out that Larusa was upset about was that we challenged the play after a mound visit. For normally you only get twenty seconds to determine if you want to challenge a play or not. But according to Will Salmon on Twitter here, Per the replay regulations, the next play in quotations shall commence when the pitcher is on the rubber, preparing to start his delivery, and the batter has entered the batter's box. No substitutions or pitching changes may take place while the umpire is in the process of invoking replay or view. So in the end here, I don't think the Brewers they did it correctly. They had Burns step on the rubber, he or he went on to the mound to initiate play. Then he stepped off the rubber, and then we challenged it. So the mound visit in there is where the wrinkle comes in. Uh, regardless, the call was made correctly, which I think is what replay is all about. Uh, but the worst part of this was Burns had to wait at least 10 minutes in between pitches. Still with the bases loaded, some thought Larusa was doing this all along or, like, that was part of his master plan, I am not quite so sure about. I think, like, what he was inquiring about is reasonable. Uh, but then the very first batter that Burns faced after that layover was a bases-loaded walk. So that made it 4-1. to one. Thankfully, he did get the next two batters out then, so no more runs end up crossing in an inning what could have ended a lot worse. For the Brewers, the last two runs of the night came on two separate solo jacks from Rowdy Tellez to make it 6-1. to one. Perhaps my favorite part about all this is the crowd started chanting Rowdy, Rowdy, Rowdy. Which is in case you didn't know is what the Bucks did or Bucks fans did with Bobby Portis. And then really to like kind of incorporate this Bucks magic even more here after the game, Rowdy tells was asked by Sophia Minart what he thought of Byrne's performance tonight, and he started his response with, well he's a dog. <laughs> Which is just awesome. It's like Rowdy Tellas knows what just happened here in Milwaukee. The Bucks winning a championship is kind of a big deal, you know. <laughs> so I thought that was really cool. Tyrone Taylor also called Corbin Burns a dog in his postgame interview. So lots of cool stuff there and and shouts out to what's going on with the Bucks. Game three, Sunday night baseball. It was the Brewers' first appearance. Or Sunday Night Baseball's first appearance in Milwaukee since 2013. It was also a showdown between Woodruff and Lynn, who combined had the lowest starter ERAs in Sunday Night Baseball history, and those two did not disappoint. Of the first six batters, five went down via the strikeout, two Ks from Woody, while Lynn struck out the side. However, the bottom of the second inning is what got Woodruff in this one. After a two-out walk, in a single, Woody gave up the first run of the game on the third straight single from the White Sox eighth hitter. JBJ had a chance to get the runner out the plate, for the White Sox were being aggressive with the send, and he just his throw was way off the mark. So that brought up Lance Lynn in a one-to-nothing game with two outs, and he took advantage of a middle-middle fastball that brought in two more runs. And very frustratingly enough, again, the throw to home was off the mark. This time it was Tyrone Taylor. So from there, Lance Lynn was good. That's all he needed. That was the difference in this game, that Lance Lynn to an RBI single. Uh, the Brewers were able to get to him in the fifth. Tyrone Taylor tripled, and then JBJ doubled back-to-back extra base hits. But that that was really about it. The Brewers had a chance in the seventh with reliever Kopech. In, but Wong and Yelich were unable to come up with clutch hits. And then, puzzlingly enough, they left Kopek in after a 25 pitch inning. Like he wasn't pinch hit for, he batted, he came out to start the top of the eighth inning, he walked Adamus and then was yanked right away. So that brought in Liam Hendricks. He was then asked to record six outs and get a save, which he did end up doing. A little confusing because the Brewers had three left-handed batters up at that point, so like why not bring in a left-handed pitcher? But I I guess we can't argue with whatever the hell Tony Lewis's logic was in that one because Liam Hendrick is one of the best in the games, and he got the save, and he's had at least one more six-out save this year. So not like the first time he's done it. Uh, It's just weird to have it happen against us because normally you think of Josh Hader doing that to teams in years previous. That has not been Hader's role this year, but one has to think that he will build up to that eventually, which in case you didn't get there, that's my built bar transition. They are a great tasting protein bar. They have a million different flavors you can choose from, anything you can imagine, they're healthy for you, and we are giving you 10% off your order when you go to the Built Bar website. When you're about to check out, use a promo code TRILOGY, and again, that is for 10% off your order using the promo code TRILOGY on the Built Bar website. So despite the Sunday night blunder and not being able to come up with the serious sweep, you really have to be pleased with how the brewers did in this one. I mean, the Brewers and the White Sox both have the largest leads in their respective divisions and their respective conferences. The White Sox are a great offensive team, and I know on the ESPN broadcast Sunday night, they talked a lot about how, well, the White Sox have not done a good job of hitting against good pitching, and that was evident in this one. Tim Anderson for the White Sox only reached base once. He's their leadoff hitter. He really gets them going. We held a Brayru in check. Uh, That just kind of shows you how great our pitching staff is. In fact, in this game, our pitching staff became the first National League team in history to record their 1,000th team strikeout before their 100th game. So we did it in our 99th game. That is MLB history. That just shows you how deep this team is in swing and miss stuff, and that's what David Stearns wants to wanted to build when he came here, and, and it's showing, and the results are paying off. So more history from this pitching staff here, and you look at how the starters did in this one. Peralta went four innings, struck out five, and again, that four innings was by design. They wanted to ease him back in. They had Adrian Hauser piggyback because Freddy Peralta's first start after the All-Star break was pushed back, which makes sense. Out of the starters, this is his first year doing it for an entire 162-game season, so why not ease him back in? He wasn't a starter last year, so I like it. It, it, Long-term health-wise, it makes sense. And His next start, they already announced, will have no restrictions, so it was just this one start. Corbin Burns, 6 innings, 4 hits, 2 walks, struck out 6. Brandon Woodruff, 6 and 2 thirds, 5 hits allowed, 2 walks, struck out 8. And that is the three-headed monster that teams are going to be facing in the postseason. So good luck to anyone else who has to go against these guys. There This was a very good kind of preview of what to, I think, expect. You're going against a really good hitting team, like I mentioned. Our pitchers came out triumphant in this one. Just would have been nice if that darn Lance link to RBI single would have never happened. That was... That was frustrating, and it was completely Woodruff's fault, too. He left that pitch in the middle of the zone. I, I really don't know what he was thinking on that one. From an offensive standpoint, I'm going to pick my MVP on the offensive side, and I'm going to go with Tyrone Taylor, 5'11", two homers, a triple, five RBIs. That grand slam in game one really broke the game wide open and then his second homer, that solo homer, came in the early parts of the game and made it two to nothing at that point. So really two clutch extra base hits there. He was he scored the only run in Sunday's game thanks to setting himself up with that triple. I uh, really liked what I saw out of Tyrone Taylor. One could argue Rowdy Tellas could maybe be MVP. He's going to be honorable mention for me here. Six of 11, a double, two homers, five RBIs. Both of his homers came when the games were already decided, which is why I'm going to Tyrone Taylor as my MVP in this one. And things are going to get interesting here because Lorenzo Cain is going to be coming back, it sounds like, on Tuesday. And there's going to have to be a corresponding roster move, which I think at this point we all believe Keston Hira is going to be the odd man out and be demoted. It, it really only makes sense. Jace Peterson, Roddy Tellers are kind of manning that for now. And, but we only have less than a week till the trade deadline, so that could all change by the time we're listening to this podcast. Uh, but Tyrone Taylor, at least, I think should not be sent down. He deserves to play over Jackie Bradley Jr., and I think he deserves to get the initial playing time over Lorenzo Kane. Which, again, at the same time, is kind of tough because, like, when you bring Lorenzo Kane back, like, normally when you first promote a player, you always give them that first start, like, with their first game back. You always get to start. It's kind of like a common courtesy thing, especially for a veteran like Kane. So. I think I can already see people are going to be upset about it, but I'm going to expect Kane to get a couple chances here against the Pirates. Maybe starts two out of the three. Taylor gets one start there. I kind of think that's how it's going to shake out, and then maybe JBJ doesn't start at all. Um, That would be the kind of ideal way, I think, to go about it here, and you're just going to kind of watch Kane and Taylor duke it out. I mean, Taylor has trumped JBJ at this point, I think. Now he's going to have to kind of withstand earning playing time over Lorenzo Cain as he is set to return here. Again, no official move has been made yet, but it's highly anticipated that it will be on uh, Monday or Tuesday. Otherwise, from a series dud standpoint, it has to be Christian Jelic. 1-12 of 12 in this series, 5 strikeouts, did have 1 walk, but it's more so the fact that there was a lot of instances in this series where he could have flipped the game. He could have came through with a clutch hit, but he did not. He's really, he had multiple chances on Sunday night's game to do this. He failed both times, struck out looking one of them, and then I think the other one was an easy pop-out. There were times in the other two games as well. And sure, we got lucky with some unexpected contributions from the Taylor and Tellez, like I mentioned already, uh, but on Sunday night, Yelich could have got us that sweep. Brandon Woodruff did what he was supposed to do. He needed some run support. We had our man up who we signed to a long-term extension, and and he did not come through. The, like, he, this had, got Twitter going in a frenzy on Sunday night. Everyone is like, trade him, demote him to seventh in the lineup. and th- There's all sorts of craziness going on. Everyone's trying to put in their input as what's going on. I know I've mentioned that his ground balls are up for the longest time. That That's kind of what I had been stuck on for a while. And I got talking to someone tonight about launch angle. His launch angle's down to like 4.3 or something <laughs> this year, uh, which in case you don't know, like launch angle is not just composed of like hitting the ball in the air more or a big uppercut swing. It's like more so like where you're making contact, your initial point of contact with the baseball. So like to think that, Christian Jelic is hitting a lot more grounders. Yeah, it makes sense that he'd be hitting the ball farther in the zone. He's spiking it more into the ground. When he is hitting for power, it's always away pitches, and it's always to the opposite field again. That bat coming later through the zone, all that kind of seems to fit that mold. So, whatever it is, you know, maybe maybe this whole time it's just been a timing issue. Yelich just needs to get a little bit quicker somehow. Shorten his stride, quicken his hands. He needs to get out in front of the baseball more, to start lifting the ball more, so we can start seeing some more of that power that we're used to. Um, so that's gonna be my quick little Yelich rant and, and my thoughts for today. <laughs> I'm sure it'll change uh, before the season's over but that that's at least my theory for now otherwise offensively in this one not a whole lot more to comment on Adamas and Urias they always seem to struggle together last series they were 0 of 13 combined between the two of them this series they are one of 15 granted they did draw six walks between the two of them which was similar to last series <laughs> but it seems they're on the same internal hitting clock, so I, I don't know what exactly that means. Maybe Willie Damas needs to start whispering to Lee Sirius's bat, <laughs> which in case he didn't catch it on Sunday Night Baseball when he was miked up, that was, that was pretty comical, and he did actually get a hit. It was initially ruled an error, <laughs> an E6, uh, but then they later changed it to an infield single there, so... Good for him to knock a offer again this series here. We need Adamas to start playing like that MVP again. I wrote a, an article earlier when he was on this tear about it and kind of compared his numbers to Tatis Jr. And at that time, they were pretty damn comparable from May 22nd until like a week ago. Uh, Adamas was playing at Fernando Tatis Jr. level, minus the home runs, uh, but production, slash line, it was all there, and Damas is in a little bit of a, a little bit of a mini slump here, at least from getting the base knocks. He's still finding ways to get on base, which is going to keep him at the top of the order. Uh, but we need him to start hitting the baseball more and making some things happen. And I know that's a lot to ask for for someone who's been spectacular, but he really makes this offense go. He's the guy this <laughs> this year, so uh, be nice to get him going against the Pirates here. Some lesser pitching. And yeah, that's what we got next. We're off on Monday, the three games against them. So Tuesday through Thursday. Thursday's game, I believe, last time I looked, it's still a 6 o'clock game. So that's going to be another late podcast for yours truly here, especially because I have a 9 o'clock volleyball game that Thursday night. So I'm going to be recording up until midnight. So you're welcome, guys. (laughs) Uh, But uh, I guess another part of your welcome, at least temporarily, is that the Padres took... Adam Frazier out of the division. That trade was announced here on Sunday night. I believe it was three prospects they gave up to acquire him. And Frazier leads the major leagues in hits right now. So that's a big boost to the Padres' offense. I think the biggest impact is like, where are they gonna where are they gonna play him? They got Cronenworth, Tatis Jr., Machado all in the infield. Frazier can play the outfield, so I think that's probably the most likely. I saw some things saying, oh, they're going to use him as super utility person, but if he's going to be super utility, Frazier has to be starting every day. He's leading majors in hits, for gosh sakes. Like <laughs> When I think of super utility role, I think of you know not starting every day, and that, that would not make sense. Uh, so it'll be interesting to see what happens there, and it could have an impact on us in October because the Padres are likely going to be in the postseason, the Brewers hopefully going to be there as well. If we meet up, <laughs> Frazier is a Brewer killer. I think all of the NL Central, really in general, <laughs> and all teams are agreeing right now that they're glad that he's out of the Central. <laughs> Just hopefully that does not come back to bite us in October. So that's kind of the big news there that I wanted to mention with him. And I know there's some talks the, Pir- the Pirates are going to move some other guys. We've talked about you know the Colin Moran's getting shipped out and whatnot. I just do not foresee the Pirates and Brewers doing a dugout swap or a jersey swap this coming series here with the trade deadline on Friday. Uh, interdivision trades not very likely, um, even for the Pirates who are just way out of contention. So it, I wouldn't. I'm not gonna hold my breath on one of the Pirates players just walking over to the Brewers dugout this week when a trade is announced in the middle of the game. So we'll not see that happening, but hopefully the Brewers can at least take two out of three against the Pirates here. You have to beat up on the lesser teams. Uh, You're not going to sweep all of them, but taking two out of three here would be huge, especially leading up into a weekend series against the Braves, who are no slouch despite losing Ronald Acuna Jr. earlier. So that is kind of what's all going on right now. And yeah, like I mentioned, I will be back to recap the Pirates series for sure. Whenever a trade happens, I will be recapping that emergently because I love this time of the year. My eyes will be on Twitter 24-7. Make sure you're following up on all the rumors. Lots of consistent rumors that the Brewers are targeting bullpen arms. So check out uh, Reviewing the Brew and Wisconsin Sports Heroics for all your latest insight and all that, who they might look at. And then kind of, you know, other targets for needs like first base. We've got it all covered. Lots of great articles from lots of great contributors, including myself. So check all those out, and I will talk to you later, Brew fans.